If you're, if you're down Karen Way, just call Mitchell Toll. Or in Patterson Lakes, just call Mitchell Toll. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Toll. Buy a summer house, just call Mitchell Toll. Mitchell Toll. Real estate. Oh, yeah, little real estate. We want more. <laughs> I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karim from unceded Aboriginal land. Welcome back for another evening of Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash the show where we discuss architecture and our civic life together. A reminder that you can text the Radio Karim studio on 0493 213 831 whilst we're on air, or the text line is now embedded as a handy button on our Instagram page, at Radio Architecture. If you're catching up via podcast, you can reach me on Instagram. I'd love to read and share your thoughts. Earlier this week... Tuesday the 20th of June was World Refugee Day. The day was first established on this date in in 2001 in recognition of the 50th anniversary of the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. This week all across Australia is National Refugee Week. Until this Saturday the 24th of June official events all around the country will celebrate and amplify the voices of refugees. This evening I have the great pleasure of being joined live on the phone by Kumar Sinha. Together with me in the studio is Catherine Franklin. Earlier this week, I was fortunate to sit down with Jared Turnbull, who many listeners may know as the owner of popular local haunt, Bo Gurks. Tonight, we'll be discussing the intersection of architecture, construction and policy to better understand the challenges being faced by refugees and those who try to help them. Fleeing the Sri Lankan police, Kumar Sinha came to Australia by boat from southern India. He was detained offshore at Christmas Island and then later at a camp in Queensland, totalling 17 months in detention. Kumar has worked in the community non-for-profit sector, particularly supporting other Tamil refugees. Catherine met Kumar within his first two weeks of arriving in Melbourne. They have since become good friends. Catherine Franklin is a social worker, activist and community organiser. She has worked with refugees both onshore and offshore, including having spent more than a year on Manus Island, working with 850 men across four compounds. Since 2011, she has been working with refugees in our local southeast region. Thank you so much to you both for joining me this evening. Kuma, I'd like to start with you if that's okay. I want, yes. to, I want to ask, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? <clears throat> um, yeah. <clears throat> Good evening, everyone. Um, my earliest memory um, of a building or place. Um, I remember as a child um, sleeping with my family in our small uh, home in Sri Lanka. 
um, hearing the sometime you know it's rainy time, rainy season, hearing the rain um, tripping on the roof. We always slept together next to each other. A common practice in Sri Lanka. We don't have our own rooms. <laughs> um, the roof of our home was made from coconut tree branches tied together, and uh, and the sound of the rain was so peaceful and calming. Sometime when there was a heavier rain, um, or the roof would leak and would slip, we have to move to another corner. Or sometime my parents cover us, um, cover me and my other brother and umbrellas. It's it's a tropical country, and. Uh, so it was nice and warm at the same time. Um, I still remember snuggling up to my mom and dad and big brother, just enjoying the sound of the rain and the love of my family. Thank you, Kumar. That's a really beautiful image. I think the, the sound of the rain is something that many people connect to and love, especially the sound on their tin roof or tin shed. So so many yeah. people love a colour-bond color roof, although now we put insulation against weather and, and that sound, but it's it's very popular and, and evocative for that reason, that it, it connects us to where we are, connects us to nature, doesn't it? Yeah, of course. How about you, Catherine? What's your earliest memory of a building a place? Well, my memory is totally different from Kumar's. Um, I grew up in Parkdale and my parents built a weatherboard house in the 50s and it was a bit of a community project. Our neighbour across the street, he was a tiler. Uh, we had lots and lots of empty paddocks all around us, no shops or anything. It was just fun. We could just run and play and do whatever we wanted. So, yeah, totally different. Incredible. Yeah. One of those many hands make light work yeah. moments. Yeah. And your parents built it really entirely themselves with community support. And I think, you know, some family members and everyone came together. I think we only – maybe we had a brick house next to us, but they couldn't afford bricks, so we had weatherboard. Um, yeah, but it was a great community – I mean, a, a really good house for our lifetime. Yeah, and actually Kumar did come and help. He Remember, Kumar, you came and you and the Tamil refugees, you did lots of work on the house as well. You painted. Yeah. And, yeah. Yes, of course. And the I garden. Yeah. That same house? That same house, yes. Wow. Wow, yeah. that comes full circle, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Kuma, how, yep. did, how did you come to Australia? I'm really interested in your story. Uh, and why? Well, <laughs> I came here by boat. Um, it was a very unsafe um, journey. Um, after the end of the civil war in Sri Lanka 2009, um, many Tamils were fleeing overseas due to the persecution and discrimination. Um, I, I was in prison and tortured three separate times, so I fled to India. Um, Sri Lankan Tamil have been fleeing to India, particularly Tamil Nadu, where Indian Tamils reside since the um, 1983 Black July riots in Sri Lanka. However, they're still in um, refugee camps without any proper um, settlement arrangement. So um, I was like, um, so I couldn't um, stay there for long. So the reason then I um, embarked on a boat journey to Australia with, um, with the full hope of, hope of finding um, peaceful and, and and in, 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 uninterrupted sleep, 
which I which I have been um, missing from most of my lifetime in Sri Lanka, and also to live a life without fear of discrimination, uh, oppression against minority communities. And Kumar, tell us about the boat trip. Ah. <laughs> um, I came in a boat um, um, along with other 40, about 50, yeah, among other 50 people, including children. Um, it was, so um, we were advised to um, sit in, you know, underneath the boat, like there's a compartment, you know, under, under the under rooms in, um, so two days we stayed there, then came um, after we passed the border, Indian border, I think we were allowed to come outside and, um, yeah, to see the, you know, come and sit or stay somewhere. To get some fresh air. Yeah. You were, you were in the hull for two days. Yeah. Then um, the third day, um, I don't know what happened, um, the engine belts all gone um, broken and... Yeah, then um, we had some um, good fishermen. They made the fishing, ro- you know, rod as a um, temporary bell, putting grease tar on it, and 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 start the engine again. And but, however, we had to change that every couple of hours while running the engine running, and also one pipe which is pulling a out the water it stopped working so someone has to work you know people has to work in a routine to you know pull out the water from the tank or inside how many people were on this boat with you uh about 50 but we six boys um got together and we committed to that work both works then um knee I don't know, maybe six or seven days, we almost finished all the foods and water. And we we, we, we didn't eat for a couple of days uh, and drink. We finished almost water and only we had some water for the children. We tried to drink seawater and, yeah, we tried many, um, you know, seawater very um, salty. So we tried to um, reduce the saltiness, um, you know, drinking hot water or put tea in it or sugar sugar in it but nothing worked people getting worried and scared women with the children start crying then um luckily we um reached the indonesian board i think and um some fishing um fishermen found us and um and without asking anything they started throwing biscuits and water they 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 looked like angel for us at that time we were fully starving you know we thought we we, we were going to lose our lose our life then then um uh we didn't by the time you know uh, we didn't have any proper map or the um, what it called um satellite phone and gps um it those got broken as well um so you didn't know where you were either yeah and um so 
luckily they we they found actually the fishermen found us and um we went to their boat and you know talking in a sign language and explained everything begged them to <laughs> take us to their so this we said okay we will surrender in you know in your country and they said don't don't know don't do that then they gave us a proper map um professional map and enough water and more food and they even they feel the um, or oh, what you call um diesel i think yeah <laughs> then uh, we we got uh, we had a um gps but the battery ran out in the second or fourth days so they gave us new batteries and explain how to you know get into the um christmas island so again three four days the journeys of journeys we've uh, yeah, re- we reached um christmas island which is where you were detained then yeah i i stayed in christmas island for three four months then i were transferred to um vipa north queensland where there is a um camp refugee camp called shega detention center And it was a total of about 17 days, Kuma, for you? Ah, uh, nine, 19 days, yeah. Yeah, by boat. No proper sleep, or you're always, um, yeah, under, under, under fear, the great fear. Normally we, we do work and sleep backside, and every night, day, night time especially, you you can see the, t- the tides. It's, I can't imagine, still like so week and yeah every time i think you know it's going to um crack our boat that how it's it was big that's how big the waves were yeah terrifying <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying uh, and sometimes fully rainy there is no any roof so we get all everyone got wet most of them got sick thank you for sharing your story kuma you then, no when when you settled in Australia, you then began working in the non for profit sector, supporting and helping other refugees. Yeah, and um, yeah, with the support of Catherine, actually, Catherine pulled me into that sector. I became a volunteer for Catherine. Then and then I you got off. work, and then you studied. Yeah. So now you've got a few qualifications. Yes, I, I, I did some diplomas and then finally a bachelor de- degree in um, community development. That's fantastic. I wanted to ask, what are some of the issues that are affecting refugees at the moment, particularly how was the housing crisis, which is on everyone's mind um, and has come up in discussions in the last couple of weeks of this show as well, how is that affecting refugee and asylum seeker migrant communities in Australia and in Victoria here in our Kingston Southeast region, which is where you both have been working and been involved? Um, generally, um, for many refugees, especially in their early years of their settlement, finding and finding a secure and affordable housing can be difficult particularly um, affect refugee communities. They often face challenges such as 
um, low English proficiency and cannot rely on Centrelink incomes due to their visa status, um, limited social support and lack of knowledge about securing houses. Um, many newly arrivals depends on their public transport inspect. Um, you know, if, if, if they're applying for uh, rental properties, they have to um, inspect the property. Um, they also, they don't have any um, own car or vehicle, so they have to depend on the public transport. Um, and also they have to travel to the family family area. Also providing required documents along with the rental property applications um, is a bit challenge for them as well, such as enough ID proof, income support, those kind of stuff. Um, because of the in, in, insufficient documents and, and real estate agents and landlords perspective on refugees make most of the applications um, unsuccessful. I, I used to work as a housing support worker and we had to submit 100, 100 of application for each family families to be successful. Um, sometimes the, 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 fam, the refugee family had to accept poor living standard and terrible housing conditions as this for the only um, option they could get. Um, and sometimes, sorry, when Kumar would place a family or a number of men into a house, then I would then go in and, and meet the people and then we involve them in our um, refugee action program to assist them in, we'd run a, a number of sessions on, you know, the law in Australia, um, you know, where to go to to get assistance of any sort. But the houses that sometimes some of the refugees lived in, particularly if it was a couple of women with children, uh, it was just appalling. I had one family, the, there was, um, remember the water tank in the ceiling, Kumar? And it yeah, was boiling yeah. and it just ran into the living room and there were children living there. The hot water unit, the hot still water one of unit. the 70s mm. up in the ceiling yep. hot water units. Yep. Leaking. And this was in Dandenong, in central Dandenong, and it just, the hot water was just pouring down. They couldn't put the buckets out fast enough. No one would do anything to help them. And in the end, um, it was just through getting onto the agents and almost threatening them. We all did it. And eventually they did come in and fix the hot water service. But that those people had lived for months and months with boiling water pouring down from the, the roof. And that's just, we've had so many examples of that, didn't we, Kumar, where mm. the housing was deplorable. Has that at all improved with the minimum rental standards that have come in? I would say no. If you look at, well, Kumar, remember we had a lot of the Tamil boys in houses in Dandenong. We'd have like eight to ten sometimes. Yeah. You know, there'd be like three to four to a room. People lived in the lounge rooms. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there was no such thing as a room of your own, and and they didn't they didn't have work rights then. They couldn't study. We ran um, a lot of um, community classes in the English language and whatever else they needed, but it was just terrible. They were, and then they when they first arrived, especially in winter, they turn all the heating on. Then they got the bill. And then they spent most of their time in bed because it was too expensive to turn the heating on. Uh, I myself was a homeless as well one stage, the earlier stage. 
uh, because I couldn't you know, provide enough ID proof. You know, there are some point system, also income support statements, the time I was working part-time. So um, my application were, were not, you know, not successful. I had to live in my car one or two months. I parked in my friend's place at night and sleep in the car and daytime in the morning I go and take a bath. It's, yeah. Are refugees eligible for the public housing lists at the moment? Uh, it's, see, um, um, it depends on the visa of the person. For example, if you come through UNHCR versus if you seek asylum, there are different type of support available. However, it's, it's, it's limit, limit, limited for everyone. And a lot of refugees, particularly if we look at Masmise community, the Burmese Muslim community, no one ever really knows when they were born or with the Afghanistan community. You know, they don't have yeah. um, a birth certificate. A lot of them don't it, know how old they are. If you ask any Afghan, mostly 90% of the Afghan would say 31st of December, their date of birth. So, um, yeah. But it's one of the document, ID document you have to submit in order to, you know, apply for a rental property or any other applications. So what, what programs are out there at the moment? What support services are available to uh, refugees experiencing homelessness? There are... Um, very wide range of state-funded social services in Australia delivered across in the three levels of government. Um, but like, you know, um, there are um, like um, launch housing, um, community housing, like um, what do you call it? Crisis accommodations. There's under this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the ASRC, Bridgetine. Bridgetines. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty good. Um, but they're mainly um, faith-based or they and they all rely on um, donations. This is a good moment to mention the number for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre if anyone needs support. It's 0393266066. And if anything that we're discussing this evening is affecting you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. But Kuma, maybe we could talk about the visas, that we had the fast track system, which is the slowest system I've ever known of, um, but there are still men waiting who came at around about the same time that you did who still do not have a visa. And because they're not in the system, they haven't been processed or their visa is still being uh, determined, they don't have access like people who've already had the Chev or um, any other visa. And now the new visa that's coming through, um, a lot of them have slipped through the cracks, don't you think? And they are homeless. Yeah. It's years and years of waiting. And the, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, please. Get no, 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 no. You, no, it's for you to talk. <laughs> yeah, there are. Um... The pe especially the people seeking asylum who are on bridging, bridging visa, they are the people you know, at, at high risk of becoming homeless or yeah, became homeless or high risk of becoming homeless. Because uh, they, they don't know, they, they live like, you know, like, like um, kind of limpo. 
um most of my friends are the same background as me um yeah they they most of them are um on on bridging visa even some of the boys who came with me in the same board on bridging visa as well um they're still you, they're still on a visa in the bridging visa yeah, which yeah. um which you have to renew every six months oh, yes sometime they wouldn't you know renew with work rights um so yeah, there are and, some who don't have work rights at the moment sorry there are still some who don't have yeah work yeah, rights. yeah 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 who are unable to change their circumstance mm, as a result even, of that even one of my friend is who is living with me he cannot get his medicare card last 10 years i don't know there is some kind of bar on on his port arrival he couldn't renew it first one year he was was given the medicare then he couldn't renew it we made so many applications inquiry and, and yeah nothing worked and some like some of the the men who have shared your house some have just fallen through the cracks as well because mm. the the pressure and it is psychological torture that they've lived through all these years so do you want to talk about some of your yeah friends? yeah um yeah i'm coming back to the housing issue yeah. um most of the the people who are on bridging visa they are not mostly they are not eligible for this kind of housing um support services so they are they, not eligible at all yeah they're just left to fall through the cracks there then yeah because the yeah. the services that exist is is not even mm. something that they can access so your your colleagues Catherine as i understand are, are helping them on the streets are finding them on the streets well, I think through launch housing and a number of other programs, they've been going out and working with homeless people who do live on the streets. But some of the other community members that we know um, have just fallen right through. You know, the the tension and the the self destruction has taken over. So it's really hard when people have gone through so much to get here and been yeah. in detention for that time. You have to be psychologically so strong to then then you spend another ten or more years wondering what your future is going to be, and you can't even access housing. Yeah, you worked on Manus Island, Catherine, and you, you described those facilities as compounds. What what were the buildings like? Um, some of them were fairly poor. Some of them were like just old weatherboard rooms <laughs> where. Um, you know, sometimes that would be an office. We we worked in an old um, um, airport hangar. That was our office space. And we just had, like, the ground underneath our feet. Uh, it was so hot. It was, like, 40 degrees, 99% humidity every day. They did, they did improve it after a while. When I got there, some of the accommodation was better. But the men, there were, like, 40 to an area. And they was like bed to bed. They had no privacy. Sometimes they'd use their sheets to, you know, put up just so that they could um, just get some sleep without having to watch people walking past all the time. The bathrooms were disgusting. Uh, the food they had, well, Kuma, you would know this from being in detention, but on in on Manus when, you know, it was just so hot, uh, often there'd be 
dreadful, cruelly things in the food they were served because they had people had to go to the mess at different times. If you got there late, there'd be no food left for you. Mm. Um, it was really t- treating people like Oh, like animals in a way, wasn't it, Kumar? It was deplorable. But it was all uh-huh. it was all done to torture people so they'd go back home. It was a it was a very disciplined way of and just the number of guards they had. Um, even if we went out, you know, everyone got wandered to get into the bus. If anyone had to go to another area, well, I suppose now uh, they are put in handcuffs. And if they're just going to see a doctor or, you know, something, a meeting or whatever, especially even in um, in Mitre, our detention centre in Maribyrnong, that's how people are treated and have been treated. Yeah, it's it's slowly, slowly the, the transition into like a jail. Yeah. I was there from 2013. I used to visit my friends and... Um, in Mitre, yeah. And I... I stopped going in 2015, 16, because, yeah, they made big walls and, yeah, you can see the guards. I don't know, before it was like officers, but then you see the guards with handcuffs and guns, pistols. Yeah. Yeah. And they had, you know, we had different types of security on Manus. We had um, we had a local company and we had other men who were flown in, flown out. Um, in the big compound with 850 men, they weren't particularly good, but I also worked at a low-level security centre and most of our guards there were fantastic. You know, everyone worked together, whereas in the big compound, no one worked with you because it was determined to just the torture was so great and a lot of people did go home because they couldn't take it. If you were a troublemaker, you got put into Charlie Compound. Um, Mm. Yeah. So, and that was to put all the troublemakers together so they didn't, in their own compounds, they didn't um, cause any trouble and activate riots or, you know, disputes with their treatment. For those who... Sorry. Oh, no, go go for it, Kuma. Uh, while I was in detention centers, you know, I most of the time lived in in the maki, big maki, yeah, with among with other forty people. It's like there were three lines of beds, including eight beds in a row. Like it, the beds also double bed. Two people has to share. When and, you say uh, maki, you mean a tent, like a tent? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Like so, like a like a like a big festival tent. maki, like yeah. a big tent. Yeah. That's where mm. people ate on Manus, mm-hmm. uh, or they had their recreation area. Um, the compound, well, the the accommodation for their rooms, they just had like single uh, metal beds with a thin mattress and a sheet. Um, And I don't know what you, well, I didn't realise you had to share a double bed in... Yeah, yeah, we had to share that time period, yeah, we had to share a double bed, two people in, yeah, double beds, those normally, yeah. Even, um, um, you know, when we buy more, sometime later I move into container, the small tiny... I don't know what's the name you mentioned. Yeah, it's a like dong. a small house. Yeah. yeah. Like a side like shed. Ten, yeah, like a 10 to 10. Double bed, still you have to share with another one. Just a small fridge and one cupboard. That's it. Very, yeah, less, less space. More yeah. of a temporary style construction, which I spoke mm. to Jared about earlier this week. 
Um, I sat down with Jared Turnbull, who is well known in the local community and is the publican and owner of Bo Gurks, Australian craft liquor boutique in Edithvale. But most locals wouldn't know this about him, that he originally trained as a mechanic and was involved in the construction industry as a fly-in, fly-out worker for a decade. Jared spent three to four years in total working on Nauru as a health and government as a health and safety manager for Ocean Outback Contracting, a construction company who was engaged by the Australian government to build these offshore processing facilities, detention centres on the island. Let's have a listen to Jared. Really, the first question I ask everyone is, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? So you gave me the heads up about that, thankfully. Uh, I did have a really good think about that. And what I kept coming back to actually was when I was a kid uh, marching around in the trenches of a house that hadn't been built yet. So they'd obviously dug the trenches for the foundations and I was in amongst those absolutely loving life until I got home covered in mud and my mum killed me. <laughs> so that was my earliest memory based on what we sort of spoke about, but it was a construction site. And you haven't hadn't left the site since until no. until opening up Bogurks, a really really popular pizza and boutique boutique liquor bar here in Edithvale. Yeah, it does seem that way. My life certainly did follow um, a path of being in construction. Yes, which is where we're sitting right now, getting a bit of sunshine on us. And I'm just looking around. You did the fit out yourself. Um, you are a registered builder, <laughs> not not registered anymore, but. No, no, no. But I did certainly, uh, with the help of my niece, we did yeah, the majority of the fit out here at, at Bogurks, um, which we're really proud of, using lots of recycled materials um, and lots of things that, you know, relate to the area, which is important to me to be able to relate to the area. Lovely. It's very cosy, very nice in winter. Thank you. And you spend many years in construction. You spent almost a decade in doing FIFO work and about – two to four years of those were spent on Nauru. Yeah, that's correct. Can you tell me a bit about what sort of buildings did you build there? What, what was the scope for construction FIFO workers? Yeah, well, the scope was to obviously head out to Nauru there and build the detention centres, but that also included – so that was accommodation um, and there were obviously your administration buildings, recreation buildings – uh, the laundries, all of the things required for these little villages, I suppose you would call them. Uh, they're all fairly basic sort of buildings, um, the sort that you would get, you know, used for temporary construction accommodation generally. Uh, that sort of fridge panel type material with an aluminium outer, um, corrugated outer, and then a polystyrene or sort of insulation, and then all your services running through that. So they're pretty basic. Um, and they're not sort of designed to, to last long term, that's for sure. And did you have to do much maintenance as well while you were out there? Well, obviously the logistics of working out in the middle of the Pacific make things pretty difficult. So we certainly did by the time, you know, we got our materials out there and then quite often there was quite a lot of rework. Um, the environment itself, obviously on the equator there, it's extremely humid. So we had lots of problems with mould in the buildings, um, having to strip out the, the interior of the buildings and redo them was, was pretty commonplace. Um, so lots of rework and just, sort of, I suppose, ongoing issues resulting from the environment that they've been put into, yeah. And you mentioned this was 
more of a temporary style. So under under the building code, how was that being assessed? How did they they look at it? Well, I, I like these buildings weren't put in place to be there forever. Is you know, it's essentially what they were there. They're much like temporary accommodation that miners use, um, FIFO in Western Australia. They're small, single-person dwellings um, is the way they're designed. Um, and in the case of Nauru, there were some much bigger buildings. So they weren't uh, like the Donga-style accommodation where you might get four rooms in a pre-made building. These were put together. So they were constructed, but it was the same materials that you'd use for temporary accommodation and temporary buildings. So like your portable styles that used to for classrooms and things like that, that's the sort of accommodation it was. So yeah, lots of corrugated tin and really sort of basic fittings and finishings inside and outside the buildings. But they were serviceable, um, as in they'd keep the rain off your head, definitely. But in an environment like Nauru with 80 to 100% humidity, there were lots of issues. Obviously, you need to have air conditioners running all the time. Uh, so, yeah, there was there were certainly some challenges building out there with the heat and just the environment generally. It's pretty arid, sort of rocky country in, in Nauru. But the, um, you know, I suppose the hardest part was probably getting materials that you needed because everything had to be shipped to site. You, um and so there was long lead times and obviously really expensive to build. And the product at the end for the cost, you know, you would, it was pretty hard to sort of look at the cost and think, you know, that the product was a really good one. Yeah. And so you mentioned it had to be air conditioned all the time. So they were constantly on, constantly running mechanically ventilated spaces. Yeah. So in order for the buildings to because of the high humidity, they had to be air conditioned. Otherwise, yeah, we had lots of problems with mould forming. Um, yeah, and in some cases we had to gut the buildings and, and redo them because of the mould. Goodness, that's very tough. Anyone who's fought mould in their home knows what a challenge that is. And once you've got mould, how hard it is to, to get rid of. Yeah, it certainly was. So we yeah, basically gutted these buildings and, and, and redid them. So, you know, Look, the tradesmen we had, and there was a large workforce from New Zealand involved out there, and they did a fantastic job. Um, you know, given the, the conditions, um, I think everyone did a really good job out there with what they had to work with. And what sort of FIFO rotation would you be doing on a project like that? How long, how many days on, how many days off? Yeah, most of the guys were doing sort of four weeks on, one week off. Um, I was on sort of a 26 and nine roster most of the time I was there. So by the time you're sort of flying, you know, out of – the middle, you know, from the equator back to Melbourne, you know, you lose a day either side of that. So it's pretty tough, um, you know, and even living in that style of accommodation, you know, you're literally 100 mils from the bed next door to you. There might be a wall between you, but, you know, there, there's not a lot of room and so you can hear everything that's going on in all of the rooms around you. So it's a pretty hard environment in that you've constantly got this sort of things going on around you that you need to deal with. And not much acoustic separation, not much privacy. No, not really. No, no. The um, the rooms that we built, you know, they were pretty good. But yeah, if you if you, people were talking in the next room, you would hear that muffled those muffled voices for sure. And anything like footsteps or knocking, banging, yeah, you'd hear very clearly. Muffled hum. And what was the process on site? So the the trades do the work, and then there was. QA that was also FIFO or the quality assurance personnel yeah. were 
on site full time? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we had our plans that we were working to, but then there was, you know, um, quantity surveyors on site to make sure that they were they were signing off on every step, um, much the same way I suppose that the building surveyor would work in Australia, but we more self-regulating out there. Obviously, we had to build to our own standard there, um, but there were QA on site to make sure that there was some oversight of, of how we were building to make sure we were meeting our, you know the standards required. Yeah, and that the scope of the contract was completed. Yeah, well, that was obviously a bit of a moving bar out there as well at times because of. The needs on the ground maybe were a little different to the planned needs, so there had to be obviously some changes. Like any construction project though, you have to have a bit of flexibility in there to be able to, to do things the way they need to be done rather than you know what the plan always says, which is all, you know, it's a challenge between architects and, and the builder. <laughs> yes, that can certainly come up. And with, with all construction, as we know, there are unknowns. There are many unknowns, many surprises. Contingencies are very much for not if but when you spend it. What are some of the really big surprises that came up? Did you ever find things um, below the soil that you weren't expecting or was just other really surprise challenges with construction? Yes, I suppose uh, some, of the, some of the challenges. Well, the logistics were probably something that I hadn't had to deal with previously because of just, you know, there was a stage on one of the projects where the, the wharf actually became unstable so we couldn't land anything so for a couple of months there we literally had no materials coming in so that was a challenge uh, that you wouldn't normally expect because yeah they were unable to bring the ship in with with everything we needed um and yeah i suppose that's the result of being out in the middle of the, the ocean and a long way from anywhere uh things like uh yeah sometimes materials on the site would go missing um and that would result in yeah huge delays and costs involved in trying to get things shipped in at short notice. Um, if you had to fly things in, there was a huge cost. Did you face any major um, climatic events that would delay construction at all? Or? Well, there were certainly a couple of interesting ones you just reminded me of. So I forgot the name, but there was a certain type of mosquito um, that w- carries, it's like a dengue fever, but that was, um, that was prevalent on the island as well. So there was a stage there where Everyone was covering up and in rid and other insecticides and they were spraying the island and at certain times of the day we had to sort of be out of, not out of our buildings um, because there was exposure to these mosquitoes. I forget the name of them. Uh, but, that, yeah, things like that which you can never plan for, I suppose. <laughs> um, and, yeah, just I, like the, the roads themselves around the island, so getting around the island was really difficult. Uh, we're using really old sort of... Cars that would certainly not be uh, roadworthy in Australia, but we were using those as construction vehicles on really rough roads. So there, there were some issues with those sort of things. Um, the standard of health and safety, whilst we tried our very hardest to maintain that high standard that you would have in Australia, it, it was a different standard out there in the middle of in the middle of nowhere, I suppose you would call it. Um, and look, the teams and everyone did a great job as far as trying to maintain the best standard they could. But, yeah, it's not, it wasn't an ideal environment for construction, that's for sure. It's probably a condition few people can imagine being in. Yeah, well, certainly when you're talking about – because there wasn't much variation in weather. So every day you're waking up um, and it's 30-plus degrees, 80% humidity, 80 to 90% humidity. So you're just sweaty all day long. So the guys uh, are out there working in that, in that sun and sweating and they're basically – they're just covered in sweat the whole day until they – 
get into their donger at night or their their single person accommodation and have a shower and chill out in the, in the air conditioning. So yeah, you're just dealing with that, you know, that hot, humid environment. It's just relentless. And you, yeah, that was really difficult. Were you involved in building some of the detention centre compounds as well? We certainly were, yes. Yep. How big were those? Uh, they were... So there was some temporary accommodation to begin with at the start and it's sort of hard to put a figure on on how many people that were accommodated in those sort of areas. Um, I don't have that information. But, you know, these were these were big villages designed to accommodate, you know, several hundred people, I would say, the, the permanent structures that we were building. The temporary accommodation um, to begin with is probably a bit less than that. It's hard to say. Yeah. But yeah, definitely, yeah, these were sizable structures with, you know, maybe a hundred rooms. I can't remember the exact sort of figures. Um, most of those rooms, pretty small, sort of two by two by three, I suppose. In some cases, you'd have bunks in those rooms, uh, but they were mostly designed for sort of single people. And all single story. I wouldn't imagine you had cranes out there, or did you? Oh no, no, we did. No, so they were they were double story. Yeah. Double story. Yeah, we were building them double stacked, um, and yeah, there certainly was lots of craneage. So the logistics out there were really difficult. Yeah, yeah. So even you know getting cranes out there had to be shipped out to the to the island. Um, certainly, the infrastructure on the island's pretty rudimentary, uh, so we didn't have much that we could use that was already there in place. We had to bring everything with us. Incredibly, incredibly industrial. Yes. Well, we're glad to have you back and glad to have you in Edithvale running Bogurks. Uh, thank you very much. It's certainly, um, it's, yeah, that's a part of my life that I look back on with some mixed feelings. Um, there's no doubt about that. But, yeah, it's, it's really nice to be here in Edithvale. Uh, I certainly love where I am these days. Thank you so much for your time, Jared. It's my pleasure. That was Jared Turnbull reflecting on a conversation we had earlier this week, his experience working on Nauru, a very, very difficult experience for everyone involved. And as I'm sitting here in the studio with Catherine, Catherine Franklin, who also mirrored some of these memories of heat, humidity and very temporary in their nature buildings on the island. And on the phone line, I have Kumar Sinha joining us as well. How, listening to that conversation with with Jared, Catherine and Kumar, how, how does that some, mirror some of your experiences? Um, very similar. Um, there was always building going on. Luckily on Manus we had a really good port so we didn't have the hold up with materials coming in but it was the relentless heat uh, which – and the men didn't have air conditioning. You know, you had 850 men in – like they were in like 250 in a compound and then the bad ones were in a different compound. So I think it was – some of them wouldn't wait till 11, 12 o'clock. It was just too hard to get up. You know, and some of the workers there would choose to do a later shift. They would work, say, 3 o'clock till 11 o'clock at night because at least when it was dark there was a bit of a breeze. Um, I can remember just being wet through the whole time and you'd wash your clothes and they'd never dry, so you just put them on wet and then they, they dried really fast on your body because it was so hot. It's you know, I didn't think... But we had these awful... Um, nylon-y long-sleeved tops 
and cargo pants and steel cap boots with socks. And, oh, my God, it was just so hot. It was really... um, It was a very difficult environment to be in. Um, But, you know, I suppose we tried to think about, you know, at least we could go home, whereas the refugees on the island, they didn't get a chance unless they voluntarily decided they would go home to an unknown future. Uh, we had you know, a lot of documentation from um, refugees who went back to Sri Lanka and it, you know, the police would meet them when they got to the airport. So, and the same in Iran, Iraq, um, many, many countries, especially Bangladeshis or Rohingya people you know, who weren't... Um, especially the Rohingyas, they weren't welcome in, in any country. So that made it really difficult. You know, housing for them was such an issue. Um, but one of the good parts I did have, I was on the local committee for... Um, um, was their annual celebration of Manus, was their Independence Day. So we'd have a big event in the local football oval and I used to run events and we'd bring in, you know, we'd take a, a week to build all these marquees and everything and they would just go to the jungle and they'd get out some of the the goods that you used, Kumar, you know, like the coconut leaves and everything and they yep. just build all these little marquees. Yeah. And, you know, and you'd have these beautiful roofs and, oh, my God, I loved it. It was so easy. And so, yeah, it was amazing. Searching for that joy amongst the difficulty. Yeah. And that's the real human spirit, isn't it? No no matter how hard these circumstances can be, that people still search for that light. Yeah. That hope. And I did work with a school that was – they always said it's, you know, it's up the highway. There was like only one road in and out. And – they didn't have any power. The electricity went up half the highway and then they just stopped. And then, um, so I would go and meet with the school and we'd organise all sorts of activities and the men would go and help build. The kids would teach the men how to build um, walls for the school because they were all built, you know, thatched huts type thing. And that was pretty amazing. They had, the principal had a phone that no one would ever want now, but it was like the first phone and they had one solar panel um, to charge it. But whenever I arrived, they would drum to let, because there were no phones or anything, so they would drum and then the whole village would all come in knowing that I'd, I'd arrived with the refugees to play sport or go to the school and teach a class on, you know, a culture, geography, all sorts of things. So, you know, we really worked hard on integration and learning what products they could use just straight from the jungle. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And this was when people weren't forced to walk around in handcuffs. They were... Well, we did have a a low-level security centre and from the other... from the the big centre, once they got refugee status, um, they were allowed to come out on excursions. So we would take them as well. That's fantastic and really important work, giving people hope and connection. And just learning skills in, you know, how to manage and what to do, what to cook... If they ever found themselves lost in a jungle, they, you know, they knew basic um, skills. What are some of the projects that we may see in the future to help refugees in Victoria, particularly um, to address the urgent need for housing? And what's what's there on the horizon? What are we looking to for hope at the moment? 
Kumar? Um, I have to tell this. Um, um, refugee communities um, often support each other with housing. Um, they help their friends and relatives to find places, and sometimes they let each other sleep on couches or in in their spare rooms. Um, another what? Um, another great group is Rural um, Australian for Refugees, Grandmother for Refugees, and Bridgetine so Sisters. Yeah. These groups find and secure housing for vulnerable refugees around Victoria. They are very, very selfless and active in their local communities. As I live in Dandenong area, I found uh, another initiative exists, such as the Dandenong Council established an um, asylum seeker and refugee advisory community a few years back. Um, they have innovative approaches to improve the accessibility to short, -term, short and long-term housing option for refugees. It is part of their action plan. What I think we need to change the way of housing, you know, is seen in Australia. First, it should be it should be a human right, not an um, in you know, not a privilege. Investment, yeah, mm. privilege or investment property. Housing first. We need to um like tax reform, more affordable housing, and greater renters rates rights. Yeah, those. That's what I think. It's really the fundamental need underpinning yeah. all other success and opportunity in life. Once people Absolutely. have stable, safe, warm, secure housing, then they can access work, education, improve their health, relationships, well-being. But until we get that fundamental need right, we are letting so many people down in our communities across so many demographics and tonight, mm. tonight we've heard particularly about how refugee and asylum seeker communities end up falling through the cracks in a already very difficult circumstance. What, what can listeners do to help if anyone's particularly interested in getting involved um, and supporting communities, people who are interested in this topic? Um, no, I'd say lobby your local members for social housing. I know that um, we've just had, you know, the pledge of $2 billion for social housing, which will be rolled out, I think, over a couple of years. But we need that, you know, $2 billion now, not in the future. And, you know, it really needs to be opened up to more people because some people can't get on the public housing list because they don't, they don't have PR. So they, they can't get into that system um, and it'll t I mean it's 10-year waiting list for public housing so mm. that's not an option for many people especially if you don't have a, a visa at the moment yeah, and if you are a landlord um, it's important not to immediately deny um, you know tenants based on their background or temporary visa status and maybe it's it's kind of requisite you know, if you have a spare room or a tiny house and put in backyard or or in you know a old caravan, it would be great to consider to rent it to a refugee. Are, are there any community networks that people should contact specifically if they haven't thought about putting their caravan or tiny house or granny flat? Um, some of these more temporary, but very much emergency because it is a, an emergency situation for many. Um, mm. if, if people have these options that they would like to support refugees and offer them, which community groups should they get in contact 
if they want to um, rent out their granny flat or offer their granny flat, for example. Probably Launch Housing is doing amazing work. Uh, the same as, I mean, the ASRC, they do provide some temporary uh, accommodation until other accommodation can be found. Um, I think Ames is still doing. Yeah, yeah. Ames doing and Vase. Yeah, opening doors. There is a program. And yeah. some are registered, some private, you know, landlords registered with um, the local councils okay. as a crisis or, you know, um, it's community accommodation kind of, yeah. Yeah. And we did have a program called I Have a Room where, you know, people pledged that if people, refugees could come from Manos and Nauru, then they would offer them a room. There's a big group of ref of advocates for refugees who all will do that. So there's a lot of activist groups. You know, there's Refugee Action Collective. There's heaps and heaps. But I suppose um, who else is ha who else is working heavily in that sector around the southeast area, Kuma? Mm, yeah. Sounds like Southeast. there's a number of organisations that listeners can get in touch with. Um, you um, can, if you've missed some of those in the yeah. list, you can replay this episode uh, when it will be podcasted by Radio Karam out on all po all of your favourite podcast platforms wherever you get your media and follow up if that is of interest to you. A final question to you both. What gives you hope? <laughs> Actually, it's. I don't think we have hope. <laughs> we, it's difficult to have hope at this time, as you know, the economic crisis and, yeah. and the inflation driven by the corporate group and companies is making lives very difficult. <laughs> and yeah, we need to have some progress, progressive ideas and policies to make, to ensure we can build a society that meets the needs of human beings. That's a very good final note yeah. to end on, Kumar. Well, we thank you both for your work, for your efforts, for your advocacy, and most importantly, for sharing your story with us all tonight. If anything that's come up on the show has been difficult for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, or if you need some immediate assistance, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre number is 0393266066. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hi, I'm Freddie from Freddie's Kitchen. Let's get behind Radio Karam. Go Karam.